Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious God, we, we come before You this morning with thankfulness. Father, we thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank You that Your love was demonstrated to us through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Father, we know no love like that of Christ's love. Father, we thank You that in His death we have been redeemed. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Father, we thank You that the blood of Christ has covered us who believe. Father, we thank You for granting us faith to believe in Your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this morning that Christ would be the delight of our hearts. Father, we are so prone to wander from You. We're so prone to slip into religious ritual. Father, we're so prone to let our minds be distracted by the things of this world. But Father, we know according to Your Word and For those of us who have been saved, we know through experience that there is none like You. That Christ is more delightful than anything that this world has to offer. So Father, we pray that You would help us this morning to clear our minds and to fix our eyes on Christ. To see Him in all His value and worth. Father, we pray this morning that you would continue to work in the life of this local church. Father, that you would make us more like Christ, that this bride would be made ready for the return of the groom. That you would purify us. Father, that you would sanctify us according to your word. That we would be men and women who consecrate themselves to you. Father, we pray that You would forgive us of our sin of lukewarmness. Father, we're too casual with You. Father, we approach You too flippantly. You're a holy God, full of power. And vengeance and wrath. Father, we don't want to ignore that reality. That there's a place called hell that's real. Whose mouth is open wide for those who are unrepentant, who are willing to, who are unwilling to bow the knee on earth to King Jesus, though the day is coming when they will bow. 
And Father, it's only because of Your great mercy that we have been spared. Father, I pray this morning that as we hear Your Word preached, that if we've never repented of our sins and placed our faith in the work of Jesus Christ and Him on the cross, Father, I pray this morning that their heart would be softened, that the Spirit would have His way, and that they too would place their faith in Jesus. And Father, I pray for us as believers that we would likewise reckon with a holy God. Father, I pray that You would teach us more of what it means to be a follower of Christ. To count the cost. Father, we're in desperate need of communion with You together through Your Word this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. We'll look at the first nine verses together this morning. The title of this morning's sermon is Standing Firm in the God of Peace. Standing Firm in the God of Peace. Can I ask a small favor before I begin? Can somebody grab me a small cup of water? For some reason, my mouth is extremely dry this morning. Just a small one. Thanks. While Jim's fetching that, let me, uh, let me read the text with you this morning. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Paul says to the church in Philippi, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche, to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, Dwell on these things, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. How do we stand firm in the Lord? How do we remain steadfast all our days? How do we endure to the end? How do we have assurance of our salvation until our dying day? 
fellow believers in Christ. I want to say thank you for the privilege that I've been given to preach the Word of God to you through Philippians. I believe today is full of application for us. Full of application for us. And a very helpful word to us concerning our steadfastness. I think all of us would agree that there are times in our walk with the Lord where we become frustrated with ourselves because we've lacked the steadfastness that God has called us to. We don't stand firm. We, we wiggle and we cower down. And we show our weakness. Well, in one sense, having our weaknesses exposed is very good for us. It's helpful for us to cause us to depend on God. But it's that dependence on God that we lack when we do not stand firm. So the question this morning is, how do we stand firm in the Lord? It's clear in the text that this is what Paul has called us to. The focus this morning is that we are to stand firm in the Lord by believing in the promises of God. By trusting in the accomplished work of Christ. And by resting in the peace of God. We are to stand firm in the Lord by believing in the promises of God. By trusting in the accomplished work of Christ. And by resting in the God of peace. But as always, for us to lay the proper foundation in Philippians... We have to preach to ourselves what we preached the first week in Philippians. It's this recurring theme that we can't escape. That weaves its way throughout the book that reveals to us the heart of Paul. And that's his love for the brethren. His love for the church. As you may have noticed in Paul's letter to the Philippians, he has spoken to them as one he dearly loves, or as ones he dearly loves. His pastoral care and sincere affection are evident. We see this genuine love for the members of the church in Paul's prayer in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, when he says, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. And then remember verse 8, for God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul loved the church in Philippi. And he continues that theme into chapter 4 where we begin today. Verse 1, he says, therefore, listen to the terminology again. My beloved brethren, he loves them. Whom I long to see, my joy and my crown." In this way, stand firm in the Lord. And then he repeats it. My beloved. Paul loves this church. He loves the people of this church. He loves them individually. And he loves them corporately. And Paul, by writing this letter and repeating his love for them, is trying to teach the saints in Philippi to love one another by exemplifying for them how to love one another. 
Therefore, our love for one another is the foundation for understanding what we are to see today in the text. So I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, to love one another. To not let that fall by the wayside. To see that that's necessary for us to grow spiritually. To see that that's necessary for us to stand firm. Well, the key to the whole text, though we have love for one another as the foundation, the key to the text that Paul's opening for us here in chapter 4 is the phrase or the words, stand firm. The opening phrase of Philippians 4 has a command, an imperative for us to obey. Stand firm. Or as the King James Version may say, stand fast. The point of Paul continuing this letter into chapter 4 is to encourage the church to stand firm with one another against false doctrine. To stand firm with one another against personal pride. To stand firm with one another in the midst of anxiety. And to stand firm with one another in Christ. In Christ. Now I repeat this probably more often than I should in sermons, but I I, want to walk us back through the the importance of understanding imperatives like stand firm. When we see commands in Scripture, there's always something that must precede any command from God or any imperative. It's... there must be an indicative that we must first believe before we can obey the imperative. With every command or imperative in Scripture, we find a declaration or an indicative that precedes it. The imperative is impossible to understand and furthermore, impossible to obey if we are not first familiar with the indicatives that surround it. Until we know and understand the declarations of God, The promises of God, we will struggle to be obedient to the commands of God. Too often we're caught stumbling around on our own. In our own strength, trying to obey God's commands that we don't fully comprehend. We see a command in Scripture and so we we run with eagerness to obey. But we haven't fully comprehended the command because we haven't understood the promises of God that surround the command that's given. We can only do what we should do when we first know and believe what God has already done for us. How can we stand firm is the question that's before us this morning. To obey that command, to stand firm, we must first know, understand, and believe the indicatives of God in Scripture that surround that command. On what truthful basis must we stand? In what promises must we believe? And in whose strength must we rely to fully obey the command to stand firm? Well, this may be backwards, but the way that we're going to approach this this morning is we want to look more fully at the command to stand firm. That's the order that it's given to us in the Scripture. And so that's the way we're going to proceed it. And then we're going to go back and look at the indicatives on which we stand to stand firm. So let's first look at the command to stand firm. How do we obey that command? Well, let's look at the text together to see exactly what standing firm looks like. Let's look at the first seven verses. Verse 1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, 
In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I believe that there are five descriptive ways that we are given in Philippians chapter 4 to obey the command to stand firm. One who stands firm will be doing these five things. So I want you to catch what I'm saying. We've been commanded to stand firm, but in order to stand firm, there's five things that we also must be doing to stand firm. And so it's like standing firm is the banner, and then we have all these smaller things underneath that are evidence of our standing firm. If we're standing firm, we'll also be doing these five smaller commands. They must be true of us. Look with me in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. The first is this. That if we are standing firm, we will also be living in unity with one another. I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. What exactly the friction between these two women was is not exactly known. But we do know that these weren't contentious women, but rather ones who had labored for the furtherance of the gospel with Paul. That's, a, that's not a small thing to say. These women had shared in the struggle of the cause of the gospel. These are godly women. They're true saints. And it's clear that he both respects and loves these dear ladies. And considers them to be true Christians. Because he says just a little bit later in the text, their names are written in the book of life. But something has caused a rift. So Paul beseeches, he, he begs, he, he urges them to be reconciled. Paul asks them to live in harmony or to be of the same mind. The Greek word here literally means to agree with one another. This is the language of Paul throughout the book. Now here's what I can say. Though we, don't, we can't determine exactly what's wrong here, the fact that Paul doesn't side with one and correct the other probably means that it's not a theological issue. Because when theological matters are at stake, Paul calls out even the closest of friends. Peter, for example. When Peter had gone astray concerning circumcision. We see evidence of that even in this book. So it's not a theological issue. One's not right and the other one's wrong. There's just some kind of rift between the women. We can't put our thumb on it. We just know it exists because he's asking them to live in harmony. This is the language of Paul throughout the book. Doesn't he say back in chapter 1, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm. Catch that? In one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. You see the the connection between standing firm and unity that we find back in chapter 1? 
And again, in Philippians chapter 2, the beginning of the chapter there, he says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, listen to what he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Right? Maintaining the same love. United in spirit. Intent on one purpose. Do you see his plea for unity again? And it's necessity in standing firm. Unity between and among believers is necessary to stand firm. Do you know that we become weak as a church when we're not united? When there's not a oneness? Even Jesus says in Mark chapter 3 that a house divided cannot stand. Now I want to draw out a specific note here. Unity is essential, but not at the expense of truth. Unity is essential, but not at the expense of truth. Paul's not asking one of these women to compromise doctrinal integrity. Indeed, correct doctrine on the essentials will divide those of us who are in Christ from those who Paul warns against in chapter 3. We stand firm by living in unity with one another. I want you to see a second thing that is necessary for standing firm. And that is that we must be helping one another. Listen to what he says in verse 3. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. He's included a lot of people in verse 3. But he begins it by saying, indeed, true companion. Now here's another one of those matters that we're not 100% sure on. We're not exactly clear on who the true companion is that he writes here. But it's most likely an elder of the church to whom Paul sent the letter. So the the letter's received by this elder, this true companion, and then he, in turn, reads the letter aloud to the church. And though this is one individual that Paul speaks of here in verse 3, this individual receives this letter and reads it to the church. So the, the message is for the whole church. The primary point here is that God intends for us, especially as a church, to help one another in the faith. What is his command for this guy? I ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. And then listen to what he says. He just keeps throwing in names here together with Clement. Right. Let's put Clement in that company, too. And the rest of my fellow workers. Whose names are written in the book of life, basically saying all believers help one another. It's on you to help one another. But maybe this elder specific role was to see to it that he assisted these women who had this rift. Sometimes a mediator, one believer can help two disputing believers resolve a conflict because they can both be held accountable by God's word and for the greater good of the gospel. Part of our helping one another is to see to it that no rift exists between believers within the church. So let me say to you, very practically speaking, that if you know there's dissension among believers in the life of this body, it's on you to see to it that it's reconciled. You don't have to do the reconciling, but bring the two together, mediate. I want you to see the absolute need for 
community life, the need to walk with other believers in the context of the local church and its relationship and our ability to stand firm. We stand firm by helping one another. The third thing that I want us to see as evidence or in helping us stand firm. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Here's another one of those repeating themes. But in order for us to stand firm, we must be rejoicing in Christ. I love the definitive language of Scripture. The Bible never leaves us any real wiggle room for our own thoughts on the matter here. We can't wish away the word always in verse 4. Even for a moment in time when we want to ignore the command to rejoice in Christ. There is never a time on earth when it is right for us not to rejoice in the Lord. Not a single second can we, we begrudge God for anything. If you aren't sure that Paul, Paul really means what he says when he says always rejoice in the Lord. Then he says it again for us. I just love when that happens in Scripture. When God makes a point twice to us and throws words like always around. As a matter of fact, those familiar with this epistle know that the word joy appears more times as Paul pleads with them to fight for real joy in their hearts and to share that joy with one another. We looked at it just a few weeks ago in Philippians chapter 2, 17 and 18, when he says, But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Paul is demonstrating this fight for joy in amazing fashion as he pins this letter to the church in Philippi from a prison. And he clearly has joy in his heart as he writes. He's in the most miserable of circumstances, and yet he's most full of joy. Well, what about tragic situations? How can we rejoice in the Lord? How can we rejoice in Christ? What about when things happen like happened in Connecticut this week? My question to you is, is God not our faithful friend? Do we have a greater friend than Jesus? Does God not always know what's best for us? Has God ever failed? And as we'll see in the final portion of Philippians, our rejoicing in Christ is not based on the circumstances that we've been dealt in life. But as Paul says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. We are, simply put, by Paul, to rejoice in the Lord always. We stand firm by always rejoicing in the Lord. I want you to see the fourth thing that we do when we stand firm in the Lord. We show gentleness. We stand firm by showing gentleness. Verse 5, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Again, the language is important here. Notice the phrase, 
to all men. This gentleness that we are to extend goes beyond just believers to all men. This is tricky sometimes because it's easy to act out or to react the way we want to when no one around knows that we are representing Christ, right? You ever been in that situation? Something happens to you that frustrates you and nobody around you knows that you're a believer in Christ, so you have the opportunity to act how you want to, to respond the way I would like to respond. But maybe you've missed Philippians 4 or 5, that you've been held accountable by God, who does see you, to be gentle to all men. The word, the words gentle spirit, or the way King James renders it, in moderation, suggests that we are to be lenient to those who have wronged us when we are in a position to condemn them and to suffer humbly under their condemnation of others, trusting God in spite of it all. Did you catch that? That when we have what we believe the right to condemn somebody, God has called us to act gently, to show gentleness. And when we're in the opposite position, when someone has the right to come down on us, that we should respond in humility. Being gentle is the opposite of the strictness with which the Pharisees forcefully carried out the letter of the law. God says, be gentle and gracious in all your dealings with everyone. Prove that you are in Christ by being gentle. We stand firm by showing gentleness to all men. The fifth thing, the final thing that I want us to see in our standing firm in the Lord. We stand firm in the Lord by being content. By being content. Listen to Philippians 4, 6. And believe God's word. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Don't be anxious is what Philippians 6, 4, 6 tells us. Or to say it positively, be content. Again, we will speak to this topic far more in a couple of weeks as we conclude the book of Philippians. But in short, this week, let's investigate the text just a bit. The way that we avoid being anxious is simple. Yet, it is a Christian discipline that far too many are unfamiliar with. In everything, according to God's word, verse 6, we are to pray and supplicate the throne of God with thanksgiving. Too often, we struggle through life without truly beseeching the throne of God and with our prayers and supplications. Listen to me, saints. You cannot. Stand firm without prayer. You cannot. You can't just walk through this Christian life without going before the king. Without beseeching him. But in everything, everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. There is a supernatural transforming work that sanctifies our hearts when we are before the sovereign God of the universe in humble prayer. I pray that you know that experience. Have you ever thought about the full terminology of this verse? To be making requests known to God with thanksgiving? 
When was the last time that you thanked God for the opportunity to make requests known to Him? With thanksgiving. When was the last time that you were genuinely thankful that you had to go to God in prayer because you were in need of having a request answered? The way that we become content rather than anxious is by placing the request, the burden at Jesus' feet. Trusting in God's sovereign plan for our life and and His interceding work, Christ's interceding work for us before the majesty on high. Contentment is resting in Christ's accomplished work every day. The way that we don't become anxious is by resting in Christ. We stand firm by being content. All we've done this morning so far in the text is to see a breakdown in how we can stand firm in Christ. But those were smaller commands that help us to obey the single focal command to stand firm. The great imperative in the text is stand firm in the Lord. But we do so by living in unity and helping one another and rejoicing in Christ and showing gentleness and being content. But obeying these smaller imperatives that we find in the text to help us Obey the greater imperative is still not sufficient in and of itself. We must first believe the indicatives that we talked about earlier before we can carry out even these smaller imperatives. We can only do what we should do when we first know and believe what God has already done for us. So the question comes to us again. So what are the promises that we must believe in order to obey this command to stand firm? This command to stand firm is dependent, I believe, on four key truths or promises that we find in Paul's letter to the Philippians. So what are the promises that we must believe? Let's look at those. We must believe the promise of future glory. If we are to stand firm... In the Lord, in this life, we must believe the promise of future glory. The beginning of chapter 4 clues us in on where we are to look for one such promise. Philippians 4 1 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. The very first word is a, a huge clue for us. The therefore is clearly. Uh, looking back to what Paul had just written to the church in Philippi, specifically verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3, when he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. What are the truths and promises that Paul is leaning so heavily upon to build our confidence to stand firm? It's the promise of future glory. Let's look at verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3 and see it. That we who have placed our faith in Christ alone have been promised heavenly citizenship. That is, eternity with God. That's a promise that we can lean on. Here's another one. That Christ, our Savior, will return to usher us into this citizenship. We eagerly await Him, is what the text says. 
That means he's coming back. The third promise that I see in 20 and 21 is this. That in heaven we have been promised a glorified body. And the fourth is this. That all things have been subjected underneath the power of God. So nothing stands in his way to keep him from accomplishing what he has promised us. Listen to the verses again and you'll hear those things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. Trusting God to bring about his fully accomplished work is exactly what our aim was in last week's sermon. Stand firm in the Lord by trusting in God's promise of our future glory with him. So those are the indicatives on which Paul builds his case for us to stand firm in the Lord. Therefore, points backwards. But I want you to see the text again. Look with me in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, we just investigated that. It points backwards. My beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. Now we have a pointing forward. The therefore pointed us backwards, but in this way, in this way that I'm about to explain to you, points forward. He says, in this way. What way? The way that he explains to us in chapter 4. So we have the promise of future glory that we look back to. Now let's look at the promise of God's nearness. Look with me in Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. I don't know if you caught it, but sandwiched in the middle of all those commands, all those imperatives, was four little words. The Lord is near. Or the Lord, maybe five in your version, is at hand. There's another indicative. In this way, let your gentle spirit be known to all men, The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You have sandwiched in the middle of all these imperatives that Paul's bombarding us with this promise, the promise of God's nearness. The Lord is near or at hand is a truth. It's plain. It's simple. Paul is saying to the church in Philippi, God is near. This nearness is twofold. We've already seen one. God is near to us now in the form of the Holy Spirit and dwelling within us. And he is near in the sense of the return of Christ, which we've already looked at. So the one that we're focusing on now is the nearness of God through the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. If we really believe that God's nearness was always at hand, would it not change the way that we act? If I truly believe that the Holy Spirit was living inside of me, would it not affect the way that I act? If God's nearness is right here, would it not have an effect? But even the reality of God's promise of future glory should have an effect on us. If we really believe that God's nearness is at hand, then it would change the way we act because we were waiting on Christ's return. What if... We knew that Christ was returning in exactly one week. What if we knew that a week from today, 
Christ would return? Well, we're not going to know. We know according to Scripture, no man knows that time. But what if we knew that he would come back in exactly one week? Would it not change the way that we live this week? Sure it would. Let's be honest with ourselves. We would act different. Would the worldly attractions that so easily allure and entangle us now have the same attraction? Would the fear of death keep us from boldly proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ? Would we be motivated to greater evangelistic fervor if we could taste the rewards of heaven? I like the way Charles Simeon said it. Could the allurements or terrors of the world have any influence upon our hearts if we knew and saw that the judge was at the door? The truth is, God is near us in spirit. And the truth is, His return is soon. So we should act like we know that Christ's return is exactly one week away. That's how we should live our lives. Whether that's the actual day of return or not. So we stand firm by believing the promise of God of our future glory. But we also stand firm because we believe in the promise of God's nearness. That He has filled us with His Holy Spirit. The Lord is near. Well, let's continue in the text because I believe that we begin to see the the fruit, the rewards, it's always there in Paul's writings. The, these rewards, these incentives that we have to obey the commands that we are able to obey because we stand on the promises of God. So let's look at the rewards of standing firm. That I believe are drawn out in the text for us. Beginning in verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds In Christ Jesus. I think the first reward is the peace of God. That we have the peace of God. If we stand firm in the Lord, we will have the peace of God. You want to know why you lack the peace of God? You want to know why you lack peace? Because you're not standing firm. Because you're not believing the promise that the Lord is near. God's peace is rewarded to all those who stand firm. This is not a false peace. There's a distinct difference in avoiding difficult circumstances or running away from the truth or ignoring the inevitable and resting peacefully in Christ in the midst of imminent peril. See, we can all produce a false peace by escaping the situation, by avoiding the truth, by ignoring what's really there. That's not true peace. That's false peace. You may you may settle your heart for a moment, but it's going to return. That anxiety. We're talking about true peace here. We're talking about the peace of God. Regardless of circumstances that Paul so wonderfully exemplifies for us. Stephen is a, a great example of this in Acts chapter 7. Let me turn there and just to read to you the, uh, a piece of the account. Stephen being put to death. In Acts chapter 7 verse 54 it says this. Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, God is near, God was near to Stephen, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, 
I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witness laid aside their robes at the feet of the young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. I can't think of no greater peril than a horde of men rushing at me with giant stones to crush my body. And for a man, Stephen, a mere man, to be so filled with the peace of God that he not only doesn't panic, but pleads for their forgiveness. That's peace of God. That's peace of God. That's true peace. Paul himself survived such stonings. He was probably the witness of this one. He survived such stonings, imprisonments, shipwrecks, 39 lashes, and he continues to stand firm, pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There is a peace that God provides that surpasses comprehension or understanding. There is a peace that defies logic, that supersedes fear. According to Scripture, Christ Jesus supernaturally guards our hearts and minds in the midst of such turmoil. Whatever your turmoil is, it can't be more than that which Stephen faced. No matter what situation you've been placed in, no matter what you're dealing with, the peace of God is to be had if we believe that the Lord is near. If, like Stephen, we would trust the Spirit that fills us now. Stress and anxiety are applied to those who have not put their trust in God, but peace is applied to those who stand firm in the Lord. The key is not trying to produce a false peace by manipulating our circumstances. We can only manipulate our circumstances to a certain degree and for a certain time. But the realization that God is sovereign over all circumstances is going to set in. Then and only then, when we realize that God is sovereign, we can't manipulate our situations, do we realize that we can't create peace for ourselves, but we must find our peace somewhere else in Christ. True peace comes from God, and it's found in Christ. All our hope must be resting in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ through His crucifixion, His death, His burial, His resurrection. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection are implied in the phrase here in the text, in Christ. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and will guard your minds in Christ Jesus. There is no hope for your mind. There is no hope for your heart. The anxiety will swarm you if you are not resting in Christ Jesus. Therefore, to read Philippians 4, 7 in that light, would be to say, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds through the accomplished work of Christ, or through your faith in the accomplished work of Christ.
in his death and resurrection. The peace of God can only be had through faith in Christ. God will give his peace to those who stand firm in Christ Jesus. But I want you to see that there's a greater reward than the peace of God in the text. As sweet and desirable as the peace of God is, there's a greater reward. Look with me in the last two verses. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. If there's any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. Listen to what the text says. And the God of peace will be with you. The second reward is greater than the first. The first reward is the peace of God. The second reward is the God of peace. The God of peace. I want you to see that Paul takes the text even farther than obtaining the true peace of God by obtaining the true God of peace. Here Paul goes even further than the peace of God. To the God of peace himself. Those who stand firm are not just getting the blessed peace of God, but those who stand firm will get the source of that peace. They will get God himself. The God of peace. The God who gives us peace will be with you. Think about that. God with you. By standing firm, you get God. Let's shift for just a second as we wrap it up here this morning from knowing those rewards that the peace of God is there to be had and that the God of peace is there if we would only stand firm. But I want to dip back for just a minute into the command and promise. We must first believe the promises before we can obey the commands. We have to put our faith in those indicatives, those true statements. That we've been promised a future glory and that the Lord is near. Paul concludes his thoughts in the same manner that we began this morning. The imperative indicative model that we began with, Paul concludes with, using himself as the example. This is our application, I think, this morning. If we truly desire to stand firm in the God of peace, then we must heed Paul's advice. So I want us to pull out the main verbs in those last two verses. Listen with me again, and I'll emphasize those, and then we'll talk about them. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever's lovely, whatever's of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Think about these things and then do them is what Paul is saying. Paul says to Dwell on whatever is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and of good repute. Paul says to dwell on this excellent thing, this thing worthy of praise. Does this not describe Jesus? Is Jesus not true, honorable, right, pure? 
lovely and of good repute? Of course he is. Jesus is true. Whatever is true finds its measure of truth in God. And the gospel. Christ says, I am the way and the truth. Christ is truth. Is Christ not honorable or noble? We know from Philippians 2.8 that Christ is the most honorable being in existence. He has a name that is above every name. You can't get any more honorable than that. Is Christ not right? God defines right because he is altogether righteous. Apart from God, there is no righteousness. So when we say the word right, we have to think of Christ. Is Christ not pure? God alone is pure, holy, sanctified. Our sanctification is dependent upon God. We can't be made holy unless he is holy. We are only made holy by the one who is holy in and of himself. Is Christ not lovely? When we meditate on the reality of Christ, do we not find him lovely and desirable or lovable? Let nothing dazzle you except Christ. He is lovely. Is Christ not of good repute or admirable? Only Christ is admirable in a virtuous sense. Every other example will fall short of deserving our full admiration. There's been some admirable people walk the planet. Have done admirable things. But they've all contained something that Christ did not. Sin. Selfishness. Motives that are governed by such. Only Christ is full is deserving of our full admiration. He is truly of good repute. He's of perfect reputation. Is Jesus not excellent and worthy of praise? This language that Paul uses is not just reflective of Jesus, but it is surely descriptive of him. He says if there's any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, could it be talking about anything other than Christ? He must be talking about Christ here. And the command that Paul gives us is to dwell on these things. To dwell on these things, to look upon these things, to look unto Jesus, to fix our eyes on Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God has intended for us. We are to dwell on him, to trust in him, to believe in him. We are to dwell on these things, meaning that we are to faith Jesus. When we have made it our business to first dwell on Christ, then we can obey the second command that we find in the text. We must first dwell on Christ, and then we, then we can begin to practice these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul says, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. We can only stand firm in the Lord by believing in the promises of God. That we've been promised a future glory. That we've been promised that He'll be near. And trusting in the accomplished work of Christ. That He is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and of good repute and excellent and worthy of praise. And resting 
and the God of peace. Stand firm in the Lord and you will have the God of peace. Let's pray together.